Heavenly Father, thank you that you are faithful and just, that you continue to love us regardless of our response to you, but that as our children, you discipline us and bring us back to a place where we must choose whether we're going to hold on to our own ideas, our own desires, or to submit our desires and our beliefs and volition to you. Help us tonight to be willing to let you initiate to us that we can respond to what you're doing and what you're teaching us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, we have been looking at what we're calling Christian way of life. And we've noted a number of times, this is part four now, so this will be review, that the Christian way of life refers to the way that Christians are designed by God to live and operate during their time on earth as his representatives. Now this includes two things, your state of existence and the manner by which you operate. All right. So when we talk about our state of existence, what we're talking about is that you, when you depended upon Christ to be your Savior, obtained a human spirit that was generated in you in the same moment in which you believed that Jesus was your Messiah, your Savior. And so as you became a spiritual being, you then had the opportunity to walk spiritually or walk carnally. Before salvation, you had no choice but to walk carnally, according to your flesh, your body and your soul, working in tandem to do what you wanted to do and think what you wanted to think. After salvation, now that you are a spiritual being, you are able to operate in a spiritual manner. And that's what separates believers from every other person on this earth that's not a believer. Jesus, when he was alive, according to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, walked spiritually through life and operated spiritually through life even though he was fully man and fully God. And when John wrote that epistle, he identified that that was the proof that we will operate spiritually as well if we walk in fellowship with the Father. So your state of existence is dealt with in the Christian way of life, that you are a spiritual being, you occur in a state, and you exist in a state that is spiritual in nature, but your walk with God or your relationship with him is different than your state. So you're a spiritual being, but you don't always operate spiritually. When you follow yourself, you are operating carnally. When you follow God, you're operating spiritually. Those are the simplistic ways of defining it. So when we focus on the Christian way of life, what we want to focus on is how we are to walk, the manner in which we're to operate. Which means first, we've got to be born again. We've got to have a spirit born in us by depending upon Jesus Christ to be our Savior. That gives us that state that we need that then allows us to operate. So in our top circle here, we deal with our state of existence, a spiritual state. In the bottom circle down here, we deal with the spiritual state of operation. So we exist as spiritual beings, and we can operate spiritually because we're a spiritual being. We must choose to do so and let the Father lead us in doing so. In Romans 12, 1, we've dealt with Paul's or exhortation the difference between an exhortation and an encouragement. And an encouragement is when someone tells you to keep doing what you're already doing. Good job. Way to go. Keep it up. You can do it. That's encouragement. An exhortation is when you are telling someone to stop doing something else and start doing what they should be doing. Hey, you messed that one up, but go ahead. Try the next one. You'll get it next time. All right? No, next time, open up. Receive the ball. Use both hands. Watch the ball into your hands. Or get to the peak of your jump before you spike the volleyball for our volleyball players. 
It's the encouragement to do something you're already not doing. So encouragement means to tell someone to keep doing what they're doing. Exhortation means to encourage someone to start doing something they're not. And Paul's giving an exhortation to the believers in Rome. And we know they're believers because he says brethren. So he's talking about spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I exhort you, I urge you, therefore, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What we identified when we looked at that verse a few weeks back was that he was identifying that he was walking in fellowship with God, and he was telling them to start doing the same thing he was doing. Now, why Paul? Why does Paul get to tell them this? Because Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was given the authority to carry out the battle plan that Jesus established on earth. So Jesus has a battle plan. He has the way that believers are supposed to live. He tells Paul, this is what you should tell them to do. I give you the full authority to instruct them in how to do this. And that's why Paul wrote a large portion of the New Testament along with the other apostles and writers. So the exhortation to the church-age believers in Rome was to start doing something they're not doing. Start walking in fellowship. And Paul compared it to the this acts of worship that the law required with the way they're supposed to live as believers in Christ. So just like the law said, this is how you are to worship God, follow these protocols, these procedures, make sure that these things are clean and don't go near it if you're unclean. He says this is your spiritual service of worship, to operate in fellowship with God. That leads us to verse 2. We spent two weeks already in there. We found out that the words do not is from the Greek word may, which means to stop doing something you're already doing. And what is it that he is commanding them to stop doing? He's telling them to stop being molded by external pressure. The word conformed is from suska metizeste, and it means to mold by external pressure. Something on the outside is shaping who you are and what you're doing, or who these believers were and what they were doing. Now, what is that thing that was shaping them? The world. Now, I want to take you back to 1 John 2, 16 to 17. 1 John 2, 16 to 17, which says, For all that is in the world. So what's the thing that's shaping you? The world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we now know, when we go back to Romans 12, 2, that the way that we are molded by external pressure is through these three categories, which we've identified as the three dominant lust patterns to the sin nature of every human being. You have a sin nature, which means that you have a natural tendency to desire things which relate to the flesh, things which relate to materialism or lust of the eyes, and then things which relate to pride. You have a dominant trend. If you look at your motivation behind your actions, they'll either be to satisfy an internal feeling that you pursued, to satisfy this desire to have things, or to satisfy the desire to value yourself over others. Lust of the flesh, lust of eyes, boastful pride of life. Every sin fits into one of those three categories. So this world operates under these three categories. Everything the world is trying to do fits into one of these three categories. Now, who's in charge of this world? Well, the first statement that typically comes out is God is. Well, God is sovereign. This is correct. 
He rules over and reigns over all things. No one through their own choice or desire can overthrow him. But there is an individual, Lucifer, who has fallen, who has rebelled, who has said he will make himself like the Most High and establish his kingdom, who is attacking constantly God in his character, and that's why we are here. That's why we are his representatives. We represent who God is to Satan and company. Now, God has allowed Satan and company to have control over this world system, this world that is made up of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Where did those things come from? It didn't come from the Father, according to verse 16. It says it came from the world. Satan and company are operating in the world, and they use those three different lust patterns to get individuals who are focused on one of these three areas predominantly to act the way they want, to follow their thought process, to help Satan establish his kingdom instead of God's. This is why fellowship with God is important. Because if you do not have fellowship with God, then you are a friend of the world, according to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. If you're a friend of the world, then you are a friend of Satan's, without even knowing it. See, this is how Satan works. He sets up this veil in front of him, and like a puppet master, he controls the things in front of the veil through his different agents, which is why we're told in Ephesians 6 to stand firm, against the principalities and the powers and all the things going on, and against the attacks with the fiery darts that attack us, and we have to use faith to defend them. This is why Ephesians 6.10 exists for us, so that we can see that even though we can't see Satan and company operating, we can see what they're doing if we pay attention to what the Bible says they're going to do. This is why we're told not to follow the world by God, because the world is attempting to be destroyed from what God originally designed it to be, and then reset up to the way Satan wants it to be. The world, in verse 17, is passing away, and also its lusts. So everything that fits in this category is going to be gone. This world that we live in is going to pass away, and its lusts. But look at the next part. But the one who does the will of the Lord will live forever. Live there is spiritual live. It's zoes referring to being spiritually alive for eternity, for the rest of this time and beyond. Now, we've got all that's in the world. The world's what molds us by external pressure, and these three categories is what the world are these three areas are what the world uses to mold us, depending upon which one we like the best. Now, all three will be a part of our life at some point, but you do have a dominant tendency towards one. Hopefully, if you were with us during the summer, you figured out which one is your dominant tendency or trend. Let's get back to Romans 12, 2. So stop being molded by external pressure to this world by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But, on the other hand, be transformed. And this word means to be changed from the inside to the outside. If you want to make lasting, effectual change in your life, you have to change what's inside first. You cannot just change what's outside. If you want to make genuine, lasting, and effective or effectual change, you have to change the inside first. And what you have to change is what you think. The Bible says in the Old Testament, as a man thinks, so is he. Meaning what you think dictates what you do and who you are. 
You want to change who you are? Change the way you're thinking. You want to change what you are doing? Change the way you're thinking. There's a reason why we do the things we do. There's always a motivation behind it. There's always a benefit we perceive on the other end. This is why we're to be changed from the inside to the outside by the renewing of our mind. Now the renovation or the renewing of our mind, the Greek word for renewing is anakinosai, and it means to take out the old thing and replace it with something new. Like when you do a renovation on a house, there's a lot of shows on TV that talk about this right now. That's what the example we used last week. So a renovation on a house takes out all the old bad things and puts in the new things to make the house totally different. And it changes that house entirely. A house that may be worth nothing or been purchased for like $20,000 can come out the other side of a renovation for $200,000, depending on what's been put in it. So what this tells us is that this, this conforming and this transforming occurs in our mind. Greek word here is nous, and it refers to your thought process. The things that you're actively thinking. What do you believe? What do you depend upon? What do you trust to carry out a desired result in your life? Why on earth would you sit through school and then do homework to get good grades? You sit through school, don't do the schoolwork, don't do the homework, are you going to get good grades? No, you can't. It's impossible. No matter how smart you are, even if you got 100% and aced every single test, your grade is not based just on the test and your knowledge of the material. It's based on the work along the way. So even if you were to get every test perfectly scored, you still have to do the work along the way. Now you know that. I knew that when I was, when I was in high school. I would usually do the classwork, but when it came to homework, I didn't want to do it. I didn't see any reason for it. I didn't see the benefit to it. Wrong attitude on my part, and my grades suffered as a result of it. I got to a class I liked, I enjoyed doing the homework, and hey, look, no problem, straight A's, piece of cake. What changed? Not that they were giving me homework. What changed is I saw the benefit. Well, that's part of the lust of the flesh. It's a story for a different day. Every conforming thing or transforming thing conforms you or transforms you in your thought process. It's your mind that gets changed. You pursue what you think gives you a benefit in some way. It's why even when we know something's wrong, we still do it. Because we like it, we enjoy it, or because if we tell the lie, then we're not going to get in trouble, we hope. Or if we tell them that we have these amazing toys at home, or, and by toys, I was using like the adult term of toys, like motorcycles and boats and all whatever, or they have these amazing things at home that maybe they will think you are important and you want them to think a certain way. So it all comes down to your mind. You're conformed by this world in your thought process through the lust patterns, but you're transformed through this renovation process, taking out what the world has led you to believe and what you have believed and been deceived in believing from the world to replace it with what God says and thinks. That's the renovation of your mind. So the world uses the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life to get you to think like Satan wants you to think. The renovation process is the Holy Spirit, who the Bible says becomes our teacher when we are walking in harmony and fellowship with God. And he uses God's word, the Bible. 
just like right now, if you are in fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit is teaching you what I am communicating to you. He's bringing these things together, making the applications in your life, showing you, yeah, see, when, when you did that sin, you were thinking this as the benefit. But really, we have to think differently. He's, communi- he's teaching you what I'm communicating, what he's already written down through the Apostle Paul for us to understand and so that we can depend upon this and change our thought process through God's word. Now, one of the things that we talked about last week with the high schoolers, and I'll give this to you too, is that being conformed is a p- an action that you participate in. Because you have the lust pattern, you have the desire, your, your sin nature, and the world is feeding you, baiting you, with something that you want. And so you participate in being conformed to this world. But when you get to this transforming part, the Greek tense identifies that you are acted upon by something else to change you from the inside to the outside. God's word, through the Holy Spirit teaching it to you, does the work to change you from the inside to the outside. You don't have to do it yourself. And so we get this idea that when we go to church, oftentimes, and I don't know what church you go to, whether it's Wiley or whatnot, it happens all over the place. But when you go to church, it's go and sin no more. We get those kinds of statements, which are great sounding statements, right? Obviously, we should not sin, right? So we get this statement at the end of the sermon, and the pastor comes up, preaches a 30-minute sermon, finally says, okay, the moral of my story, go and sin no more. Do better this week than next week. What's he really saying? That you are the one who has to do the work to carry out your relationship with God. Now, is that what we've seen here? If What it's saying is that you are the one that has to change yourself. But what happens when we look at this verse? God's word is the thing that has to change us. It's the thing that works to change us. We can't work to change ourselves. We have to be in fellowship with God, and in doing so, the Holy Spirit changes us. It's not our job to change us. It's his job. It's our job to be in a right relationship with him, allowing him to do the work he needs to do in us. When we are out of fellowship, we are participating in our being conformed by this world. When we're in fellowship, we are allowing the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside to the outside through the Word of God. We never, in any way, shape, or form, have to do what God commands us to do on our own. This is a command. Stop being conformed to this world. Stop, being, stop participating in the action of being conformed to this world. But on the other hand, Be acted upon by the Holy Spirit teaching you through God's word to be changed from the inside to the outside. The Holy Spirit can't change you if you're out of fellowship with God. So what do you need to do if you realize you're out of fellowship? Confess your sin, get back in fellowship with God. Now the Holy Spirit is able to teach you to change you. In fact, the Bible says that when we're out of fellowship, the Holy Spirit is not able to teach us or change us. His role shifts at that point. His role changes for the believer to convicting us of our sins so that we can go, oh, I sinned. Change our thought process, repent, and then confess it to God. Get back in fellowship so that he can then work again in us to change us. If we are not in fellowship, we are not able to be changed by the Holy Spirit through God's word. 
Sounds kind of harsh, but the Bible says that God can have no fellowship with darkness. And when we walk in the darkness, we cannot have fellowship with anything that is in the light. The analogy is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And so if we say that we have fellowship with God, but there's sin in our life, we're walking in darkness, God's in light, we're in darkness, we're lying, and we make God a liar if we stay otherwise. If there's sin in our life, we are walking in the darkness, and God is walking in the light, and we cannot have fellowship with him. Confess it. Move on. The renovation process is taking out of the old and replacing it with what's new. So like I said, there's a benefit that you see in what you think and what you pursue. You take what you know, you take knowledge of something, and you then depend upon that knowledge to produce something in you. This is where we'll be going next week in our lesson. We'll be identifying what I call the data evaluation principle. It's a fancy term to say the way that we evaluate the information we have and choose to depend upon it or not. Why is it that sometimes we'll depend upon a lie to get us out of a situation? Why is it sometimes we'll think it's okay to do something or justify having done something when we know full well it's wrong? Because we, in that moment, think of that thing as being able to benefit us in some way. A lie has no value whatsoever. You deceive those you love, you make yourself look bad, and you fail to represent God, which is your ultimate duty. But when you tell a lie, you're depending upon your ability to deceive another individual to produce a benefit to you on the other side. We'll make this more clear as we get going through the data evaluation principle next week. And this is examining for us what, what has to take place when we renew our mind, when we allow the Holy Spirit to do that in us. We have to be willing to confess our sin and get back in fellowship with God so the Holy Spirit can teach us and change us from the inside to the outside. And when he does that, he'll take away those things like lying is okay, and he'll show us in his word that lying is deceitful and that we're not to deceive one another. And he'll say, depend upon this to benefit you rather than depend upon your own thought process to benefit you. Reminds me of a verse in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Some of you perhaps know it. It says, trust in the Lord. Do you know it? With all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. We'll try to tie that into the data evaluation principle, or this equation, this principle that, that we have that always functions, that knowledge plus faith equals action as we get going, because we want to identify the renovation process so that we can see where the Holy Spirit's work takes place when we're in fellowship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for its ability to change us from the inside to the outside. We ask for heavy conviction, not for guilt, which is our human response to what we've done that we know is wrong, but for the proof that what we've done violates your standard, so that we can choose then to confess and agree with you that what we did was wrong. We pray, Lord, that as we walk through the halls of our high school or schools tomorrow, that we would think about and evaluate whether or not we're walking out 
the life that we have spiritually or whether we're not relying on the, holy, the world to conform us by our own lust pattern. Thank you for loving us in spite of either of these things. May we be dependent upon that truth to motivate us to confess our sins and allow you to teach and guide us even more. In Jesus' name, amen.